Hi, this is Bill Whelan, the host of Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. We're doing something a little different with this episode. It's actually a recording of an interview I conducted on August the 18th at the Hoover Institution's Summer Policy Boot Camp. The Hoover Institution does this every year when pandemics haven't closed our doors. We invite young men and women interested in public policy to spend a couple of days on the Stanford campus with Hoover Fellows discussing the great issues of our time. This particular interview features Victor Davis Hansen, the Hoover Institution's Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow, a classicist and military historian, and something of an authority on America's social and political divides, topics he writes about frequently for the likes of the National Review and American Greatness. The topic, America after the Trump presidency. So here's Victor Davis Hansen. I hope you enjoy the conversation. One thing Scott did not mention about my friend and colleague Victor is Victor is a farmer. Uh, the Hanson family, multi-generational farmer in the San Joaquin Valley just outside of Fresno. Uh, it's almost 10 o'clock in the morning, Victor, for a farmer. Is this like about 3 o'clock in the afternoon for you? Or? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, my father said that riders go to bed when farmers get up. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So about today's talk, Victor, America after the Trump presidency. Um, I'm not so much sure the Trump presidency is over. I know I'm not going into Maricopa County or anything like that, uh, but he is still a presence. You and I did a talk uh, for uh, Hoover donors last month, uh, late July. And at the time, if you went on to uh, Amazon's nonfiction uh, list, three out of the top four books, three of the top four best-selling nonfiction books in America were Trump books. Bob Woodward has a Trump coming out, uh, a book coming out on Trump. It's called, I think, Peril. Uh, it's interesting, for all the trashing of Ann Coulter uh, by media, people are now taking a very Ann Coulter approach to these books, peril, shock, mm -hmm. doom, horror, things like that. But uh, so Trump still has a fascination with this, Victor, and why, why, why the hold? Why are Trump books still selling? He's been out of office for a year. Historically, with the exception of John Kennedy, one-term presidents don't have that much of a hold when it comes to books, but yet there's still this cottage industry of Trump books. Well, he's very fortunate in his enemies. Yeah. So... Um, by that I mean, if we were having this conversation, say, February 1, mm -hmm. I don't think you would have prefaced it that way. It was very unpopular. Yeah. But Joe Biden has been in office seven months. And I don't know why Joe Biden did this. Uh, all he had to do was pick and choose the Trump um, agenda, that had, and they've been very successful, and then just claim it as his own. He did that with the vaccination. When he took office, there were 17 million people vaccinated. He said not one person had been vaccinated, but he had been a very, I think I, I, that's an understatement. He and Kamala Harris had almost said, she said explicitly, he implicitly, that they wouldn't be vaccinated because they didn't trust it because Trump's yeah. fingerprints were on it. Yet when they, he, uh, then he just accepted it and he took credit for the vaccination until the latest variant. He was riding high on that particular issue, but all of the other issues, he had this Pavlovian idea that if Trump did it, I'm going to undo it. Mm -hmm. So we had no problem at the southern border. Now we have two million people scheduled in the, this fiscal year. Uh, you can argue whether we should stay or leave in Afghanistan, but we had 25 to 3,000 people. We had Bagram Air Brace. We had a mechanism for air support to keep that mm -hmm. presence, but he wanted to overturn that. The Abrams Accord had brought relative peace to the middle. As soon as we, we overturned that, we resumed the, uh, the subsidies to the radical Palestinians. We told the Iranians we were going to go back. Then we had a Mideast war. Uh, you could argue that this inflation was not necessary because we had a lot of pent-up demand. We had a recovering economy. People were going to go spend. We already, under Trump, had been quite profligate uh, in the sense that we borrowed a trillion dollars, mm -hmm. and then we borrowed two trillion more, and now we have two trillion in infrastructure. So I guess what I'm getting at is that he sits back and says, how do you like things now? Right. And most of the people, although he was unpopular, think that in every particular issue, they're not. he's not getting 50% Joe Biden. Right. So Trump is saying, these things worked when I was here. The second thing is, very quickly, he's not on social media anymore. Mm 
Right. The left thought they had him, but he's that proverbial roadrunner, you know, Wiley Coyote and the roadrunner. And every time they grab him, he's off somewhere else, and he says, "Oh, I don't have Facebook and Twitter." And somebody right. called him and said, "What's he going to do?" And I, and I said to the, this person who was an advisor, "It's the greatest gift he's ever had." Yeah because he's not saying that Anthony Fauci throws like a girl or whatever he does. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it, he's got a lot of things that are uh, in his benefit. The, the biggest $64,000 question is, can you have a MAGA agenda without the MAGA person? And I want to get into that, the question of Trump versus Trumpism, if you will. But uh, So as Scott mentioned, Victor, you're a very prolific columnist. You write for National Review, American Greatness. And I want to read a quote to you uh, from your column of this week. And here's what Victor wrote. Americans are growing angrier by the day, but in a way different from prior sagebrush revolts such as the 1960s silent majority or the Tea Party movement more than a decade ago. The rage this time is not just fueled by conservatives. For the first time in their lives, Americans of all classes and races are starting to fear a self-created apocalypse that threatens their family's safety and the American way of life. That's a very long way of saying that American people, the American people are mad. This is kind of a wonderful country, Victor. Why are people mad? Because they, they have a feeling that the, the basic processes of their daily life are now being threatened. I don't mean the people in the enclaves <laughs> that are very elite and privileged, but the average person. I got on a flight from Fresno last week or two weeks ago to Dallas, and the pilot announced we don't have any fuel, so we're going to go to San Francisco 180 miles in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. I took a flight on Monday back to Fresno, and the, and the pilot said, we don't have enough fuel in Fresno to take this plane off tomorrow, so we're going to go to Denver halfway and top it off. I was walking on my farm two weeks ago. I turned the corner in an almond orchard, and a person was sitting there with an uh, automatic weapon, handgun, and, and he didn't speak a word of English. He's obviously just arrived in the United States. And this, I'm a citizen of the United States. I want to know who an armed person is trespassing with a gun pointed at me. And so when you go to Venice Beach or Santa Monica and you see homeless people, and there's 600,000 of them in California by some estimates, and then you look at uh, the, the status of race relations, uh, I just filled up here, it was almost $5 a gallon mm -hmm. for gasoline. And when uh, I went to get a sheet of lumber, four by eight plywood, it was $22 two years ago, it was $91. Mm -hmm. So I think what people are saying is when they look at the stuff of civilization, food, fuel, safety, security, it's not there. And they want to know why at the greatest moment of American leisure and affluence and uh, influence in the world that we can't do basic things like make sure people, uh, Asian Americans can't walk down the street in a big city without being assaulted or why people uh, in San Francisco there's a subculture that tells you where to go and where not to go depending on whether you want a syringe stuck in your tennis shoe or feces stuck on your shoes. Mm -hmm. So these are, we're going back into pre-civilization, pre-modern elements of our society. Right. And then we, we're not able to express that. And that gets anger. Because people, ha they have two lives. And it's not good for a society to live an ostensible, overt life and then live in an empire of lies. Right. And we're living in an empire of lies. When we see things are not working, we're not able to articulate that without being canceled or this or that or ism or ology. And I think that's leading to a lot of anger and alienation. Now, if you live close to the Stanford campus, Victor, and you've done very well in life, you live in a 6,000-square-foot house with a nice pool and a three-car garage, and you have millions of dollars in the bank, and you, you live handsomely off the California economy. You're in tech, let's say. Are you mad as well, or what you're talking about is a division between people who are economically well-off and people who struggle with not just economic, but just everyday life? Well, you, were, you're, you have the money and the influence and the contacts that insulate uh, yourself from these, mm -hmm. these elemental challenges. But uh, I think a lot of people realize that a lot of the very wealthy on the coast are not subject to the consequences of their own ideology right. for the reasons you tell, and people are getting very angry at them. So it's one thing to say you want open borders, but uh, where I live, we have 
a, a huge influx right now, and I just walked across the campus, and I hear all of this open borders advocacy, and here I look at all these empty dorm rooms, and the first thought came to me, these are nice places. There's a medical school there. There's a law school there for legal advice, medical advice. There's tutors here. What better place than to bus people from the border and put them in the Stanford dorms for the summer? <laughs> I think that would be great, and everybody would be happy. The people who advocated uh, open borders would be able in person to offer their, I'm not being cynical either, but instead it's, you know, it's the poor Mexican-American people in Fresno County who are trying to line up for the dialysis machinery, and all of a sudden there's people from uh, Central America that need help, and the social services are overwhelmed. And it, I, I think so we have these stereotypes about politics, but we never say to ourselves, just forget the politics and the ideology and see these, the effect of these policies on average people. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, it opens, up, it opens your eyes up, I think. All right, let's talk about Trump and Trumpism. There, historians love to look back at Ronald Reagan, Victor, and there is at all times a debate, which came first, the chicken or the egg, Ronald Reagan or Reaganism. And it's a fascinating argument. Yes, Ronald Reagan came forth in 1976 and 1980 and presented this conservative argument to America. Yeah. But you can also conversely argue that Ronald Reagan came forth in 1964 and gave a speech in support of Barry Goldwater. And what Reagan was was, in essence, Barry Goldwater, but in a much better, more telegenic, more presentable package than, than Goldwater, if you will. Is that analogous to Donald Trump? Because, yes, Donald Trump comes down the escalator in 2015 and it probably goes on to win the presidency. But couldn't you also argue, Victor, that there are just a lot of elements in Trumpism already in place, that, that a lot of things that made up Trumpism, just Donald Trump just sort of smartly corralled? I think that's a very good analogy, Bill. Uh, Pre-Vietnam, pre-60s cultural revolution, pre-radical uh, hyperinflation, uh, Ronald Reagan didn't resonate in 64. Mm -hmm. After all of that, he did resonate. Right. And so I think Donald Trump is a product of two things. One, there were a large people in the middle of the country that felt that globalization had bypassed them right. and that the elite had said to them, had mixed cause and effect and said, it bypassed you because you take OxyContin or you didn't learn how to code or you're a fat build uh, deplorable. They didn't say to them that there was outsourcing, there was offshoring, there was a huge change in policy. And therefore, because these jobs vanished or your way of life vanished, then in, in despair you do it. So that was insulting on top of injury. So that was one thing. And the, the other was, look at the, the Republican Party um, had not won 51% of the vote. Not that Trump did, but they hadn't done that since George H.W. Bush. In 2004. Uh, no, no, excuse me, George H.W. with Dukakis in 1988. I think that's the last time that a Republican won 51. I think okay. George W. Bush won exactly 50.3 or something. Okay. So back and then the I think they'd lost five out of the six popular votes. Right. And so when you look at Mitt Romney, I, uh, I remember talking to some member, uh, my wife, and she said, this is very vicious about the way uh, Barack Obama has characterized him as an out of touch. Mm -hmm wealthy grandee that doesn't have empathy for the working class, and then she smiled and she said, right. it's very unfair, but of course it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I think that was the idea that the Republican Party was living up to its stereotype of a golf course elite. Uh -huh. we're, too, uh, we're too refined to um, get down in the gutter. So when right. John McCain ran, they basically said he was senile. When Romney ran, they said he had an elevator in his home and he had to put, you know, he, he hazed somebody when he was 16. He put his dogs on top of his car. <laughs> and he said, you know, I'm too, I'm too noble to, to reply to that. I'd rather lose nobly than win ugly. This, this goes back to Bob Dole, actually, in 1996, who famously tells Republicans, I'll be Ronald Reagan if that's what you want me to be. So yeah. it's authenticity thing. But you're talking about Republican politics, but also Trump runs against the political class. What, remember what he says about Hillary Clinton? He said, sure, I don't like her, but I invited her to my wedding because this is how basically you, you buy these people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. And remember the vocabulary of disparagement that, that Obama and Clinton and Biden had employed. For Obama, there were clingers. These were the losers of Pennsylvania. For Hillary, there were the irredeemables and the deplorables. Right. For Biden, they were the chumps, the dregs, and they all have one thing in common. They were not 
by coastal elites. They were poor white working people or people who were of mixed heritage that didn't identify essentially by their ethnic uh, identity. And they, thought, and they thought they could get away with that with impunity. And they did. All of our institutions, professional sports, Hollywood, academia, Wall Street, uh, the media, social media, Silicon Valley, are controlled by a particular cultural profile. Right. And they have this inflated view of themselves. And they're never subject, as I said, to any audit. And they, they just had this echo chamber. And then meanwhile, 55% of the country despised them and kept quiet about it. And I think you know, Donald Trump, had he been more effective and not so gratuitously insulting, because Americans like fair play and they like people to be gracious, right. he, could have, he could have easily, and COVID, I think, had a deleterious effect on him. But that anger is still there right. and that resentment. And it's not all negative either. It's, there's, and we're watching this debacle in um, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And my question is, why didn't the CIA, if the CIA spent two years chasing a hoax called Russian collusion, and then they went out and 50 of them signed a, a letter saying right before the election, this Hunter laptop is part of Russian disinformation because of our intelligence sources. And all of that effort and all the retired military that said, he's Mussolini because he canceled the New York Times. Why didn't just some of them just lay off the bat and just say, as retired military or present military, we, 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 we're going to root out white supremacists. Right. We're going to look at critical race theory, climate change. But for right now, our job is to make sure the United States does not suffer the most humiliating defeat in its history of the last 50 years. And they couldn't do that. So a lot of what's happening, to get back to your earlier question, is people look at these institutions and they say, I don't want to take an airplane that can't get to the destination because it has no fuel when the CEO of American is saying that Texans are racist for asking an ID before you vote when you have to show an ID to get on the damn airplane. Right. So just tend to business first. If you're a general and admiral, just tend to business before you virtue signal about Kennedy's critical right. Just don't lose Afghanistan. And I think that's why people are angry. Okay, so Victor, the elements in play back in the summer of 2015 when Trump jumps into the race. Immigration. Yes. Um, the divide between coastal America and flyover America. Um, people in the country upset over the financial crisis and nobody went to jail for the financial crisis. Lack of confidence in the political class. What's changed in the almost six years since, over six years since now? Well, I, I think everything and nothing has changed. I think in this first six months, uh, remember how Joe Biden advertised himself? Mm -hmm. He was, it was the first virtual campaign. We had 102 million votes that were cast through earlier or absentee voting. 63%, we never had that. We never gone through that, it was 42%. And he had a virtual campaign like William McKinley, only in his basement rather than his front porch. And so he, he said, I'm old Joe Biden from Scranton. And I'm a nice guy, and I don't tweet, and I'm not vulgar, I'm not orange, and I didn't dye my hair, and I don't have a big gut. And that was the idea. And so everybody said, you know, Trump did this, and it was pretty good, but COVID and this, and then, so they want, they just, so he came in, and all he had to do was say, these Abrams Accords, I don't like it, but I'm for, you know, they're mine. They're now called the Biden Accords. And Saudi and Kuwait would have now buy, bought into it, probably. And he said, oh, the Iran deal was a really great thing, and we fought for it. But, you know, now that it's gone, I don't want to. He could have done all of that. And we wouldn't have this chaos on the 2 million people. It's chaos on the border mm -hmm. that are scheduled to come through. And Afghanistan is chaos. And the inflation is chaos. And the critical race theory. And suddenly, when everybody starts to identify by their ethnic identity as that's essential, rather than incidental, which is just contrary to the whole, the whole tradition of the civil rights movement. And so what I'm getting at is that uh, Biden was, uh, had an opportunity to say that all the downsides of Trump you don't get with me, right. and I'll just rebrand his agenda, and you'll be happy. Because every one of those uh, issues that I talked about polled over 50% right. under Trump. Trump never did. 
<laughs> it was like, whoever did this, we like it, but we just don't want to say Trump did it because exactly. he's so crude and vulgar. But now it's Biden overturned every one of them because he was crude and vulgar, and now he, he lost on both counts. Right. So crude and vulgar, uh, there's another way to phrase that, Victor, and that would be unfiltered. Yes. Uh, and I would contend this was America's first truly unfiltered presidency. And I think this was part of his appeal when he ran in 2016. I can't tell you how many people I know who voted for him, but they told me the same thing. I think he is a jerk, but I also think he is sincerely, authentically a jerk. In other words, he is telling me what he really thinks. This is an honest thing. Now, I think this is a problem for his presidency. We probably agree because he is at all times stream of conscious tweeting. You know, sometimes the dark of night, sometimes at dawn, not a good thing to do if you're president. It's probably, I find that tweeting, Victor, is sort of like writing a column where it's best sometimes to write, go to sleep, wake up the next morning and see if it still makes sense, if it's still funny or whatever you're trying to get at. But Trump was without a filter. This ties into a challenge. I think we should talk about this for a couple of minutes because we're talking about America after Trump. And that is really this society that does not have a filter because of social media, because you can go onto Twitter or Instagram or some other social platform and tell people what you think. In other words, bubble thoughts have become express thoughts. Yeah. Well, I think for good or for evil, the social media culture was unfiltered, and that's what people do in their private lives. Right. But then their public officials are supposed to have this decorum. But as I said earlier, we had all of this euphemism and bureaucraties, this language that they use. Like the other day, Joe Biden said, I take full responsibility. The buck stops here on Afghanistan with me. And then he says, but Obama did it in 2009. And then Trump did it. And then the Afghan army right. did it. So people said, we don't like this fake language that our officials, and we'd like somebody once in a while mm -hmm. sort of to come in, you know, um, and break all the China. And we don't know what direction he will go, but we'll turn him loose and point him that way. And that's what they they felt right. with Donald Trump, they, they liked that. One other thing is that, um, that we didn't talk about, but I had a, a very sort of a big donor for Republican causes. Somebody said to call. He wanted to know whether to give to Trump or not. And so he started telling me how bad the tweets were, and they were terrible. So I said, would you repeat them to me? <laughs> and he said, well, OK. Well, why did he have to say? Marco, and he started laughing. And then he said, then he said, low energy jab. <laughs> and every time he mentioned one of these personal ad hominem tweets, the guy was laughing. But he right. was supposed to show me how horrible they were. Right. So the point was that low, somebody found out that Jeb Bush was low energy, that Marco Rubio wasn't 6'6", right. that Ted Cruz could be a pathological exaggerator. And so the tweets wouldn't have worked unless they hit on an element of truth. And then they were retaliatory. Right. I went through once in an article in the book, and I went through 50 of them, the right. most infamous, starting with a John McCain terrible thing he wrote about John McCain. I'd rather have my people kill and then get captured. Right. And what did you find out? John, John McCain started all that. He said that uh, Donald Trump brought all the crazies out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. And so when he was asked, Trump got very angry about that. Right. But my point is that the elites think that doesn't matter who started it, but the average American said, this guy started it and this guy finished it. And so there was not the anger about the tweets initially. Right. Had he tapered them off, I think it would have been okay. But it, there's this existential question, Bill, and that is that at this late date in our uh, republic, we have such a huge bureaucracy. Two million people work for the federal government. They're not audited. Mm -hmm. They're not elected. That How do you penetrate that? administrative state. And so a lot of people think you need some chemotherapy to kill the cancer before the chemotherapy kills us. Right. And that's how they envisioned Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. We also, in this nation, we seem to have an appetite for, shall I say, salacious behavior. Yes. Trump is off the stage. Bravo Television thrives with reality TV. Professional wrestling is doing as well as ever. Uh, Kim Kardashian, who first came to fame as what? Paris Hilton's sidekick and then a porn tape of hers released, and suddenly she became a, a figure. She's now practicing, about to practice law in California. Um, the point is, we tend to reward salacious behavior, and we tend to have a fascination with it as well. And when you look at Donald Trump, you may not like Donald Trump. You may not support him. 
But the fact is there is, and this gets back to the idea of why there are so many damn books written about him, but there is still a fascination around him. And this actually goes back with him to the 1980s, Victor, when America first discovered Donald Trump. And what was the fascination back then? The sort of nouveau riche gilded lifestyle, the what the famous lifestyles of the rich and famous, the TV show in the 1980s. Yeah. So, so we just, we, as a society, we just tend to gravitate toward this. I think Americans don't know, I mean, it's like pornography in the Supreme Court. They know it when they see it, yeah. but it's hard for them to define it because uh, Mario, I mean, Andrew Cuomo violated the dignity of women successively, mm -hmm. pathologically, and yet Hollywood gave him an Emmy Award. Right. Uh, you could talk about Bill Clinton, you could go back to Elliot Spitzer, you could talk about all of these people. But there's a sense that if you have taken out a particular progressive insurance that, that protects you, I'll give you an example, I mean, I have a very, uh, I'm the only conservative of my family. So I have four siblings and they're all Bernie Sanders types. So one of my siblings was going on about salacious behavior. Yeah. And I said, you know, you've convinced me. She said, what? I said, yes, <laughs> he's crude. I, I, and um, I said, okay. She said, what convinced you? I said, you know, it was just too much. How can you have the president's daughter arranging to have a tryst in the White House? She said, I hadn't heard about that, but that's horrible. He did that, didn't he? And then I said, you know, then he exposed himself, put his phallus in his hand and says, does the Taliban have anything like this? And she said, he did? I said, yes, he did. And then I said, you know what's even more humiliating? He sits on the toilet and he makes people take notes that he doesn't like, his staffers. She said, oh, that's so gross. And I said, well, you know, and the worst thing of all is that he had an 18-year-old, he had sexual relations while he was president in his uh, presidential bed when Melania was not there. Then he went down to the swimming pool. This should have taped it off because there is no swimming pool in the White House now. Right. But he went down to the swimming pool and he said, uh, would you fillet my, excuse me, my uh, assistant? And so this family member was aghast. I said, I just described Franklin Delano Roosevelt, JFK, and LBJ, right. and nobody said a word. Those are all documented incidents. So mm -hmm. the difference in our, now is that our culture is so open and so salaciously interesting on social media, and uh, the, the press was always liberal and progressive, but it was professional, mm -hmm. and now it's, it's fused. And so there's a, there's a official Washington Post, NPR, New York Times, network news, and then there's a renegade uh, Ben Shapiro podcast right. alternate. But nobody believes anymore that they're sober and judicious journalists that are empirical. And so when they say that Donald Trump did all of the stuff, and you think all of the things they covered up from past presidents who were passed off to us as these pillars of decency, or when we hear that Ted Kennedy was a lion of the Senate, given his personal life. I think a lot of Amer Americans just say, I don't believe it. I don't, I don't buy into any of this stuff anymore. I'm going to vote for Trump. In a very crude way, Trump said that. You remember, he said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, and they'd still vote for me. Right. So setting aside the pandemic, Victor, is America better off or worse off after the Trump presidency? The uh, country, if you look, and I'm, I'm going to try to be empirical, if you look at the data, mm -hmm. and you look at... He, never, he was the first president in my lifetime that we didn't have a war. He didn't start a war. Right. We didn't have a problem. ISIS was gone. Uh, this, as I said, the stuff of life was agricultural produce. Food was not inflation. We had very low inflation. We had record low uh, minority unemployment. We had almost record low peacetime unemployment. We had about 2.8 GDP. We had low inflation. We had, still had low interest. Um, so by all of those traditional uh, criteria, he was very successful. Now, when you get to the second thing, were people happy about it? Mm -hmm. Apparently not, because 50%, uh, he never achieved 50%. So there were people, for a variety of reasons, that despised him. Partly he incurred that, but right. for him, for, for them, he was the incarnation. And I don't know, and you, you know this better than I do, Bill, but the left loves presidents when they're out of office. So they right. hated uh, Reagan, and then when Reagan was out of office, that he, he was statesmanlike, let's name the, we'll name the airport in Washington after. Right. We're go 
and they hated the elder Bush, and then he became the model of sobriety. Then they hated W, and now W is, they love W. But with, so I don't know to what degree they just attack whoever is there, but there was a, such a pathological hatred, and that he was supposed to play by the markers of Queensbury rules, like George W. Bush did not reply. But he got up every morning, and he got a big smile on his face, and it was like a B-12 shot. They attack me, I'm going to attack them. And he, he thrived on it. And that, you know, drove the uh, country apart. And, you know, when you talk to people in his, his circle that would call you, they, every, what do you think's going on? You'd say, well, why don't you get even instead of get mad? Why don't you just bite your lip like Obama, uh, Clinton did and said, oh, I'm so, this is so problematic, I really don't, and then just fire somebody. Right. But instead of saying, I'm going to fire this person, then not do it, but then take the heat for being so loud and obnoxious. Right. So I have spent my time here at the Hoover Institution trying to make sense of politics, California politics, American politics. And I will tell you that with regards to Donald Trump, I have guessed him wrong at every step of the way. I never thought he would run for president. I thought he was just trying to leverage more money out of NBC. I thought that once he got in, he would do it for a couple of months, and then once he had to start paying for it himself, he would get out. I thought that once somebody else picked up immigration as an issue, he would bow out. I thought the good people of Iowa and New Hampshire would kick him to the curb. Uh, if not them, South Carolina, somewhere along the line, he would hit a wall. I then thought, well, Republicans will gang up and they'll stop this, if not in primaries at the convention. Well, he got the nomination. Republicans will never vote for him. Hillary Clinton will beat him. I was wrong consistently, so spotless record in that regard. So I'm not going to ask you if you think there's another act to him politically, because we don't know what he's going to do in 2022 or 2024. But let's talk about if somebody else can pick up Trumpism and run with it. Yeah. Is it as simple as somebody just cut and pasting the 2015 speech and adapting to 2024? Or do you have to be Donald Trump himself to pull it off? Because Republicans will learn this the hard way. You can put on a brown suit and try to be Ronald Reagan, and it doesn't work. Democrats will learn this. You can try to put your hand in your pocket and speak with an accent like John Kennedy, and it's not as good as the original product. So is Trumpism transferable to another candidate? It's a good question. Uh, whether you like it or not, in the four to five areas that Donald Trump changed the Republican um, agenda, that's institutionalized now. Right. Everybody said the MAGA agenda, but America, but if you actually go back and look at it on regulation, tax policy, mm -hmm. uh, judicial appointments, it was pretty much conservative mainline Republicanism. Where he differed, of course, with those four or five issues. He said, I'm not cutting Social Security. Right. Uh, working class people need help in the Middle West. I'm going to look at trade and I'm going to make sure that it's yeah. reciprocal and symmetri drug, symmetrical. Drug, drug prices. Yes, yeah. and I'm not going to, I don't think, as a businessman, he said, an optional war in the Middle East that doesn't pan out in the cost of benefit, we're not going to do it. Right. And that was, a, and then the border, and he said, we're going to make immigration measured, legal, diverse, meritocratic, and that had not been the, the position on those issues of the Republicans. Now they are, so... I don't think there's a difference. If you had a, a Republican convention right now, there would not be a floor flight fight over the agenda. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much there. Maybe if you had some guy get up and said, I'm for more tax cuts, for, for, a lot of people would say no, because that's, that's, that's just for the elite. There's an anti-elite element in the Republican Party. And I, I looked at the top 20 zip codes the other day, and then I looked at the... Uh, the t uh, per capita income in, in 20, the top per capita income, and the top 20 zip codes voted overwhelmingly Democratic right. by income. Uh, the top 20 uh, congressional districts by per capita income, 17 voted Democratic. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at who makes $100,000 and who doesn't, right. about 58% uh, of those vote Democratic. And about 75, I know that percentages because not all people are, are working, et cetera. They're on, but 75% of the people who don't make $100,000 vote Republican. That's never happened in my life. I grew up as a Democrat partly on economic populism. So that is there in the Republican Party. So then th this windy answer is, uh, does somebody have the magnetism without the, without the uh, downside? And everybody... Right. We always have a great Republican or a great conservative hope. We had this conversation five years ago with Scott Walker, right. the can-do governor. Remember him? 
<laughs> took, and he completely imploded on the stage on the cabinet. And that happens every time. So I don't know how Ron DeSantis will do, but right now he seems to be competent. He's fiery. He fights back. And if he can, um, if he can perform well, we're going to have a big showdown because I, I am convinced now that, that Donald Trump believes that he can, can get the nomination and he can win, and I think he'll probably run again. Okay. And I'm not sure that it'll be very interesting to see what his supporters think of that. Okay, so you think he's going to run again. There's another way to look at 2024, Victor. And let's say for the sake of argument, Joe Biden does not run again. And it's, I'm not basing that really on Afghanistan or anything that's happened in the past few weeks. I'm just looking at him, and I physically don't know if he could actually actively I'm campaign. Not physic- I'm not sure yeah. he can finish four years. Right. That's another story. So let's take Biden out of the equation. Trump may be in the equation or not. But doesn't 2024, Victor, look as ultimately a referendum on populism? Yeah. In this corner, if not Joe Biden, AOC and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and their view of the world versus Trump, or if not Trump, someone else taking on Trumpism and that version of populism. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that Bernie Sanders terrified the Democratic Party in the way that Donald Trump terrified the Democratic Party on certain issues, they had commonalities. Right. That you've been screwed by the bi-coastal global elite. They just, the cause and effect was different for each one. And so the big difference, though, is that the people that you listed, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, et cetera, right. they, this is not the Democratic Party that I grew up in, I was a member of when I was a kid or teenager. My parents were, my, my mother was a Jerry Brown legal uh, judicial appointment. Right. So this party has a fundamental distrust of the American past, present, and probably future. It feels it has to be fundamentally transformed on all sorts of levels, and that it's not a positive force in the world today, and it's flawed. That's the message I think Americans got from the last year, the woke movement. The other populist says we don't have to be good to be perfect, and we're better than the alternative. So when you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying that we have all of these problems and you have the Secretary of Defense, and you have all these people saying, we're going to root out this ology and this ism. And then you look at this plane, C-17, flying in the sky above Afghanistan, and people are clinging to it, and they're dropping off at 10,000 feet, so desperate they are to get into this supposedly toxic place that our own beneficiaries are saying is toxic. That's the difference. And I think when that that's what the issue will be, I don't think either side will be able to out-populism the other side, but there's a big fundamental difference. A lot of people think, you know what, I never said we were utopian, I never said we're perfect, I just said that we have a mechanism to self-correct and self-criticize, and we're better than the alternative. And two million people at the southern border seem to agree with me. That's what their argument will be. You know, Victor, we're also seeing fissures in politics right now. In 2020, for example, Trump struggled with the elderly vote, which historically is solidly Republican. But he struggled, why? COVID. They didn't like his COVID handling, so they'd had confidence in him. Here we are sitting in California, and those of you who are not Californians may not know, there's a a recall election coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, The voters of California... Uh, signed a petition. They want to have a special election to determine whether or not Gavin Newsom serves the rest of his term. And if you look at the polls right now, the governor, in a very de- he's a Democrat in a very Democratic state, he's struggling right now. And he's struggling with one group in particular, and this ties in my question to you, it's Hispanics. And they're upset with the governor because California was about dead last in the nation in terms of reopening schools. And if you're a working class Hispanic in California, public education is both the ladder for your kid But it's also, if you have a two-income family, it's daycare, plain and simple. And when you don't allow your kid to go to school, it just completely destroys your family existence. The point of this, Victor, is we're seeing, we saw Republicans struggle with the elderly vote. We're seeing, in a very blue state, the Hispanic vote is now sort of turning against the Democratic establishment. Do you think 2024 begins something of a correction process in America? Yeah, I think it's already happening. I live in a, a town that's about 90% Mexican-American, southern Fresno County. My brother, one of my brother was married to a Mexi- Mexican woman who passed away. And then my other brother's children, or two of his children are Mexican-American from an earlier marriage. So, um, and, I, and I talk, most of the people I see every day are Mexican-American. And I would say that 
in Fresno County, 35 to 40 percent voted for Trump, and I'd say 45 to 50 will next time, or somebody like him. And the answer is they don't. They used to be able to be persuaded that a bunch of racist white people wanted to keep them out of the border, but not when there are 20 million people li living here without you know legality. They understand that it's things have changed and right. that. Uh, Illegal immigration now impacts them. It lowers their wages, they believe. It believes they crowd social services. And something that's never talked about mm -hmm. is that it's, it's kind of a racist stereotype to say Mexican-American or Hispanic because it would be like saying white, which I think is a race. There's so many different groups that don't have anything in common. Mm -hmm. So you talk to somebody from Monterey or Sonora, they'll tell you that the most they don't trust people from Oaxaca. Right. Or uh, yesterday, two days ago, I was talking to a Mexican-American law enforcement officer and another mechanic. We were having breakfast, and they said, you know, Victor, these guys are not Mexican coming across the border. Mm -hmm. They're everybody, anything but Mexican. Meaning, I think there was kind of a racist implication they were from Haiti. Or, right. So this immigration issue is no longer a unifying issue for them, but gasoline, electricity prices in California are. And more important, and getting back to California, is that uh, they, I don't like to use the word they because they're so, such, we're all so, we don't want to be characterized as groups, but they don't like pretension and hypocrisy. So when they look at Gavin Newsom and he gives these lectures, they, they say to, you know, they'll just say when we talk, he went to the French Laundry. He was sitting there, I can't go anywhere. They shut down my, my canteen. Right. They shut down my house cleaning business. I, I, I can't. He, he kept his kids in private school. The, ki the private schools right. were open the whole time. My kids are at home, and I have to stay home. I lost my job at the L as an LVN because I had to watch them while they were on Zoom. Right. What is going on? And they get very angry about it, as everybody else does. And then when they hear him talk, and he talks about, in, you know, in the abstract, diversity, inclusion, and equity, and we're going to have a more progressive capitalism. I thought, well, you're the most regressive damn capitalist I've ever seen because you're a creation of the whole San Francisco good old white boy network that you would never had anything except for the ties and the Getty families. And you're lecturing us on inclusion. You have two big mansions that are about as segregated as they can become. And people are sick of that. And so, you know, it's like Jose said to me the other day, I picked that up in a column. He said, why would I listen to Oprah Winfrey from a $90 million compound complaining about racism to <laughs> Meghan Markle in a $15 million compound? So I think what we're getting at here is right. class is the issue. Class is the issue. And it's no longer tied or married at the hip to race. So that's a good segue to the final question, then we're going to get to your questions here. Um, and that's wokeism. I look at this crowd of very bright young men and women, and what are we leaving them? We leave them a hell of a lot of debt right now. We're leaving them with the struggle against China, but we're also leaving them to figure out what to do about wokeism. Yeah. And we all laugh about wokeism, but wokeism raises serious questions about how you conduct your everyday life in terms of work and the language you use. It's how you raise your children. It's how society gets along. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have been very harsh. I think you said wokeism is killing this country. Uh, did you not? I think it is because it starts. It always starts with an abstraction that before you even meet somebody, you have these expectations based on their superficial appearance. Mm -hmm. You know, I was eight years old and my parents didn't have a lot of money, and we drove all the way up to see Martin Luther King. We stopped in Hunters Point and got two African American families. I've got 12 people in an old station wagon to go to Grace Memorial, and then there was a line to get into Grace Memorial to hear King speak. 1964. My mom pushed me in. Mm -hmm. And they closed the door, and I heard this speech. And he said, it's the content of our character, it's not the color of our skin. And he said, I don't care if you're a janitor, I don't care if you're a business, you do the best you can. It was the most inspiring speech. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've always thought, intermarriage, assimilation, integration, these are wonderful things. Uh, you know, somebody the other day, I was listening to the radio about cultural appropriation, and I walked into the Kingsburg food market, and here was a Hispanic woman, and she had a T-shirt from Kingsburg and said, Kingsburg Vikings. So I walked up to her. I said, you like the Vikings? 
And she said, yes, I do. I said, you've culturally appropriated my Swedish heritage. I said, my great-grandfather came from Sweden and founded that town. When I was growing up, nobody spoke English, and now I feel robbed. And she said, get over it. So, no, 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 demand reparations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, we all culturally appropriate everything. So I think we're, the woke movement is, to tell you the truth, it is becoming a refined property of the wealthy classes and the elite classes, either the wealthy white people who feel very guilty about their privilege and then they virtue signal in the abstract. You know, I don't want to mention names. When, when, I, when a very prominent multi-billionaire classicist was writing on an online magazine how she felt so bad uh, about racism, I thought, well, why don't you just, if you feel so bad, go down to Cal State Bakersfield, live there a year, mm -hmm. and teach Latin to Hispanic kids. I've done it for 20 years. It's the best thing in the world for their master of grammar. Right. But don't, don't virtue signal. So I think they're getting sick of it because it's a class thing. You know, when you look at the Obama party, mm -hmm. 700 people out there violating all this, and we're supposed to feel these are the most sympathetic and empathetic people in the world. If you uh, don't read, you should read Maureen Dowd's column on this from last Sunday in the New York Times. She just sort of eviscerates them. But uh, final question, Victor, is wokeism equivalent to smallpox? Can it be eradicated? Or is wokeism the equivalent of COVID, where you just have to continually find ways to check it and vaccine, vaccinate it? I think it? it's all of these isms that we've had they, the, there are positive elements that get incorporated, mm -hmm. but we try to prune out the negativity and the cancel culture and the McCarthyism and the say them witch trial attitude. Mm -hmm. So I, to the degree that uh, people were self-segregating, I, I have, I, if you want to make a government effort to say birds of a feather shouldn't flock together and, and and, but I don't know how you adjudicate that. Right. When I go to get donuts in these small towns, I don't meet anybody who's white that's running them. When I look at the NBA, it's 74% Africa or 72%. I don't care. I, would, I think the worst thing in the world would have a, a quota because I don't think it would be a very good game because I watched that game in the <laughs> 60s. Well, I watched I grew up with it when blacks could not participate. It was not nearly as dynamic a game. So I'm for meritocratic criterion, I don't really care how it ends up. And if people feel that they're excluded, then you have to, my attitude teaching mostly Mexican American kids, and this came up at Cal State Fresno, was always, we're going to be better than they are. And I always concluded me with them. I know I went to Stanford, I can tell you those snooty little white kids, we can beat them, but you've got to learn Latin and Greek and you've got to be able to read French and German and we're going to teach to speak without notes. And if I hear anybody you know, I said, I'd always start the class. I have a stick shift Chevy. And they'd say, I have a stick shift Chevy. I said, no, you don't. I said, if you're going to be a CEO, you have to speak the king's English. You can speak that at home. Well, that's racist. I said, I don't care if it's racist. I'm just worried about you succeeding. Right. And uh, that, I think that attitude is much, uh, because I don't think there's any difference by races. And any disparities we have are because of cultural, uh, you know, lack of opportunity, but you can overcome that if people take it upon themselves, not in a cosmic fashion, but on an individual fashion, and try to mentor people. So even today, I have maybe 40 students, and they're in their 30s and 40s, and uh, that are very successful. And every once about three or four of them will write me and say that basically they're woke. And I'll just say, I'm so tired of it. Don't write me again, because it's so boring. And uh, so I, I think it's going to pass because it's based on the principle that this country is not fair and you can't make it and it's historically evil when, you know, right. uh, I saw that they attacked, a, a, one last comment, attacked a statue of William Tecumseh Sherman. Yes. Because I guess it was Native American policy. William Tecumseh Sherman took 60,000 Midwesterners who had never seen a black person in their life Minnesota and Iowa and Illinois and Michigan and he went and burned down Atlanta and then he said I'm going right through the Confederacy and he said I want you to find every damn plantation and he burned down Hal Cobb's plantation and he said I want every uh, black slave freed and they followed him all and he got to the Carolinas and he just broke the law and gave them free land and then he said we're not done we're going up to the Carolinas, and we're going to come right back behind Bobby Lee's army, and we're going to destroy it. 
And, you know, 700,000 people got killed in that war, but it was not about both sides being equally racist. Yeah. So a side note, Victor, I once took a date to a Golden State Warriors game, and I asked her what she thought of it, and she thought, well, it's really fun, but it's really not fair that somebody who's six feet tall has to play against somebody who's seven feet tall. Wouldn't it be a better game if everybody was the same height? You're quoting now Plato directly in, in the Gorgias. <laughs> Socrates says, at Athens they had this thing, everybody has to be always equal. And Socrates says, well, okay, we got the people without land, and we do this and this, and, and then uh, Gorgias says, but we have... The, how about the people who can't speak, meaning right. the animal kingdom? Do they get to vote? And it's kind of a right-wing, cruel thing to say, but the ancients warned us that the log logic of mandated equality result and equity, equity rather than equality of opportunity, is endless mm -hmm. because it, has, it takes on a logic of its own that you can always find one element of the human experience, or like Aristotle said, once people are equal politically without political opportunity, they demand they be equal in every aspect of their life. And that's impossible because we're not born, I, I wish I was better looking or younger or taller or smarter, but that's just not happening. And so we, if the government tries to make us all equal, we're going to have to use a level of coercion that we haven't seen in, since the 20th century in Germany and Russia and China. All right, so we have about 10 minutes left. Maybe if Scott's kind, we could go a couple minutes uh, after, uh, late with Victor. Thanks, but let's do some questions. Why don't you uh, get a swig of water? And, uh, okay, so let's start in the front row here. I have my back literally turned on you all. I apologize for that. So we'll go here, and then we'll go over here. We'll go over there, and just, uh, so we'll start here. Let's wait for the mic, okay? Hi, uh, thank you for the talk. My name is uh, Mark from Copenhagen, Denmark, and I'm hoping on those Viking reparations. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, you were talking. So Are you Danish? Yeah, Danish, French, American. Remember what a Swede is? He's a Dane with his brains blown out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we came to North America first, but um, no, sorry. Um, yeah, there's a lot of talk about class elites. The elites don't represent uh, ordinary folk and such. Uh, and I was thinking about your example, uh, Mr. Whalen, on. Um, on Reagan and where did this originate? And I thought about uh, William F. Buckley, uh, who really uh, managed to some sense to make uh, uh, the Republican Party for like ordinary uh, folk. And everybody was like, when he ran the New York race, how, how is this guy attracting anyone? Right. Uh, he has never, he's not a farmer, that's for sure. Uh, the same with Trump. These are very uh, elite people uh, who manage to represent ordinary folk. Yes. And okay. that seems as a conundrum for many people that it isn't, uh, yeah, a farmer, or, uh, for lack of a, a better expression here, that manages to represent ordinary man or woman uh, very well. So okay. what are the characteristics of these elites who manage to represent uh, ordinary folks' yes, opinions? That's a very good question. When Trump was running, I didn't know much about him. I just didn't like what I knew about him because I'd, I'd never watched The Apprentice. And, and I watched about 15 episodes. Uh, but I called a guy in New York, and I said, you're in the finance business. Do you know this guy? And he said, you know, I don't like him. But I walked out, I, I see him get out of his chauffeur when he goes and visit this building site. And nobody's watching him. And he goes and actually talks to the people who are pouring cement. So then he came to Tulare, California. I wasn't there. So I talked to a congressman. I said, so he came here, to, he did 2016. I said, did he do the normal thing? Did he get the fake caterpillar hat? They get the Mitt Romney work shirt. They put bales of hay. They put a straw in their mouth. And they said, we're going to get you guys water. And they said, no. He came in with this obnoxious Bronx accent. He had this black, it was 105. He had a black suit on with wingtips and uh, this horrific Queen's accent that he didn't fake, you know, like Hillary did or whatever. And so he was authentic. And they, they resonated to that. So I think when we say elites, I have a lot of... I have nothing but admiration for uh, meritocratic elites, great violin players, great classical skull. I, I think that's what makes our country go, great engineers. But I don't like the idea of creating a whole class that says they're elites based on their birth or their income, and then they're never subject to cross-examination. So uh, I'll give you one other story. I wrote a book on Trump. And a guy called me and said, I got to meet with you. And I said, no, next time I'm in Florida. So we had lunch. And he said he had golfed with Trump. And so I first question, I said, does he cheat? And he said, does he cheat? <laughs> he cheats all the time. And I said, well, 
does he bet? He bets all the time. And as I said, does he pay off his bets? No, he doesn't pay off his bets. Every time he bets $500 on a shot and he loses, he says his wallet's in the clubhouse. So I said, well, then you voted against him. No, I, I raised money for him. <laughs> well, why, why did you do that? And he said, well, when we went into Mar-a-Lago, he was gone for 20 minutes. And we had about 50 of us. And he went in and paid everybody $200 in tips because he knew they weren't going to have customers that day. And then on, he went and said he didn't, have a, he didn't have his wallet. And he said, because he fibs, he came back. And he said, that cost me. And I said, well, where'd he go? He said, he went over to the, the, the guy hole of the, uh, one of the caddies for another golfer whose parents had died. And he came back and he said, that cost me $1,200. And I said, well, Don, you didn't have, this guy's telling me, he said, you didn't have your wallet because you didn't pay me. He said, well, you can afford it, but this guy's family died. They needed money for the funeral. So he was authentically interested because, I think, not because he was noble, but because he was an outsider in the Manhattan. People didn't like his accent. They didn't like from his queens. He, he was a brawler. And he hated banks. That's why he always likes low interest rates. He just hates banks. He likes to owe money. He doesn't, you know, he, he, so he resonates. He feels comfortable. Big Macs. I always thought that was a lie. I asked another friend that went in, what did you have? He said he gave a silver tray with a Big Mac on it. Then he had little haagen cups. He said it was about 3,000 calories. Yeah, that's sort of like sorry that person goes to Dunkin' Donuts, they order half a dozen donuts and a Diet Coke. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, question over here. Sir. Uh, Mr. Hanson, it's an honor. Thank you for being here. Uh, we were talking today a lot about the term wokeism. Questions. And um, I was actually, personally, I'm a, an opponent of using that term because I think it should be addressed to reflect the leftist origins of it. And I like to call wokeism contemporary Bolshevism. Um, and pretty much a lot of the climate that exists today could be categorized as the dekulakization of the white male. A lot of times that happens, though, up until Trump, many Republicans were either too weak or timid or, for lack of a better term, wusses to kind of challenge that issue. Why do you think uh, Trump had so much success, and how do you think Republicans and those on the right can move forward in uh, challenging contemporary Bolshevism? Why? I didn't feel here the last part. He equates wokeism to contemporary yeah, yeah, Bolshevism, yeah. so essentially, how do you challenge this? Yeah. How do you challenge it? Yeah, I think the, the way to challenge wokeism is on two grounds. And one is class. And say that, do you really believe that everybody of a particular skin color is of a particular incomer and is a member of the oppressor class? You see what it is about? The left has never, ever been able to create a class revolution because of the fluidity of classes. I can tell you that I grew up middle class, and I have siblings that are lower middle class because they haven't done as well. I have one sibling that's upper, upper middle class or greater. So there's this fluidity, and it's hard to get class solidarity. And the left knew that, and that's why they started losing when the silent And then they came up on the idea that race is immutable, that once you identify as your particular uh, outward appearance, that doesn't change, and therefore, if you then add the next step to it, that you're always oppressed, then you have a victim versus a binary. Marxists always want binaries. No middle class, no moderation. So once you say everybody who's non... I heard Joy Reid the other day celebrating that now we're only 63%, she said, uh, non-white. She was giddy on television. But, but I thought, well, what does that mean? Does that mean Oprah's oppressed? Does that mean... I don't know, Jay-Z's oppressed? Is Beyonce oppressed? Uh, are there people that I see in my hometown that are very uh, affluent Mexican-American people, have nicer homes than me? Are they oppressed? So that's the way you, you have to talk about class, and then you have to talk about being illiberal. So when people identify, I've only, in my entire academic career, I've only been called up one time for unprofessional behavior, and that was in, 1987, the dean called me in because I had a Chicano student, and she could not open her mouth in a literature class by not saying, I, as a Latina. Mm -hmm. Well, as a Latina, I can't relate to the Achilles. As a Latina, I don't think this involves me. And she, she just, so I said, I'm done with it. The next day, I went in, and she said, as, I said, well, as a white guy. And she looked at me, and I said, as a white guy, I want to talk about this. 
and as a white man, I want to talk. I did that for the whole class. And I get a call. I get a call. I get a call from the dean, and he said, "Did you say that you were a white man?" I said, "I am." And he said, "Well, why'd you do that?" And I said, "Because that's the rules that you've allowed to happen on this campus." And I said, "She said, well, this person just complained." I said, "And she's in my office." And he said, "Just ask her if she, if she identifies." Well, she said she was a Latina. So I said, "There you go." So I don't think that's very helpful that we reduce everything down to our common dominant. Another thing to remember is if you read the great text in any culture about civilization, Thucydides' history or Aristotle's politics, the great enemy of civilization is what they call tribalism. Mm -hmm. Tribalism. And tribalism is a group where uh, an ideology that you favor people based on similar kin ties or superficial appearances. And I don't want to stereotype countries today, but when I go to the Middle East, and I, I've been to every country there, I think, except Iran. I had my ruptured appendix taken out, on Lib out in Libya and almost died. Okay, what is the, the thing that I always noticed? That people would tell me that the, the surgeon is their cousin or they, are, they, brought, they brought their brother-in-law in, or their child, or don't talk to that person, he's from a different... To me, they all looked Arab or Libyan. But when you start identifying by criteria other than merit, based on skin color or ethnic background or sexual orientation mm -hmm. or gender, I just think that there's no historical support that you're going to have a meritocratic society. And that your generation should be very careful because if you look at the age, average age of marriage, the average number of children, the average age when you're buying a home, the average amount of college debt, I'm not saying that advocating that you have to have a normal lifestyle, but I'm just saying people get married earlier and they have children and they buy a home and they have no student debt, they have an opportunity. Your generation's not having an opportunity. If you don't want to get married, fine, but if you want to get married and, and you want to have children and you want to buy, it's going to be very hard for your generation for what Bill talked about with debt right. and student loans. You've got $1.7 trillion in student loans hanging over your collective head. Okay. Next question. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Um, you know, you mentioned the situation in Afghanistan. I think that uh, it's hard for anybody here to doubt that it's just absolutely horrendous and it's been uh, horribly mismanaged. Um, but, you know, I, some would say, and, and many are saying, that um, this is kind of the... Uh, you know, taking action where Donald Trump was just uh, speaking about it. But, you know, that his policy was always, we're going to end the endless wars, we're going to uh, extract ourselves from Afghanistan. So I guess I'm, I'm trying to, you know, get some clarity on the, um, you know, the Trump premise and, uh, yeah. and try to figure out whether, you know, this was an enlightened uh, take and whether the, um, you know, extraction that we're seeing now was uh, avoidable. Um, yeah. And, you know, maybe whether there was a case to be made that we needed to stay longer. Yeah. Well, I would identify three very quickly eras of mistakes. So we went in there in um, September of 2001 after 9-11 to get bin Laden and the people who harbored him, the Taliban. And that was successful except for bin Laden escape. And then we were there for a year. We had UN uh, approval. We had both houses of Congress approved it. And we decided that this was such a problematic society that we were going to help it. We weren't just going to bomb anymore. And for the next 20 years, we could not, I mean, we pacified the cities, just like Alexander the Great, just like the British did. They never could control the country. So we, and then we lost 2,300 dead, and we lost another 4,000, I think, contractors, and we spent $1.6 trillion. And the idea was this is going to be like South Korea, or it's going to be like Japan, or it's going to be, or it might even be like Iraq. But nobody ever said to themselves, this is a landlocked country. It has no uh, industrial democratic history. Like Iraq had some of that. And it's very hard to get to, and it's got terrible neighbors, Pakistan, Russia, Iran. So it's a really hard thing to do. But instead, we just sent troops there. So the military, the intelligence, and the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration. Nobody ever questioned in a cost-to-benefit analysis why Mr. Smith, who's a forklift driver from Ohio, has to go over there and get killed. Why did he die? They, don't, they never explained it to us. So there was anger. 
So Trump comes along and says, as a businessman, they don't pencil out. So we're going to get out. But when they said, you've got to go into Syria and help the Kurds, he didn't do that. He bombed. And he bombed ISIS. And he destroyed ISIS through the air. So his plan was, we're going to get out. We're going to keep 25 to 3,000 people in there. But we're never going to give up, right away at least, the Bagram Air Force Base. It's a huge Air Force Base. The contractors are there. They're servicing the planes. We have total air superiority. So whatever the Taliban tries as we gradually leave, we can make them pay a terrible price. Was that a good idea? It reflected what today, if you ask, should we get out of Afghanistan after this mess, about 40% still think we should. They don't blame Biden because of this anger. Where Trump, I think, made the mistake was he actually met with the Taliban. And he released 5,000 of them. I wouldn't have done that. I would have just said, you know what? We have our own timetable to get out because it, we, it's not helping anybody, maybe. But we're not going to tell you when we're going to get out. And we're going to use air support. And if we do decide to take everybody out, and I wouldn't have taken everybody out. I would have kept 2,500 there. We hadn't lost one American dead in 18 months. And for Joe Biden to say that the Afghan army did not fight well, they didn't. But they put their finger in the air and they said, I'll take my chances with the medieval Taliban rather than depend on the Americans. So he was culpable in the sense of talking to them. You can't talk to the Taliban. And then Joe Biden came in. All he had to do was say, unlike Donald Trump, I want to get out. He could have mischaracterized Trump any way he wanted. And then he could have told what to his joint chiefs, keep Bagram find where the 10,000 Americans, get them out over the next six, this six months. Then find the 80,000 where they are, quick, quietly get them out, and then decide what to do. If we want to keep the Army intact, we'll stay and provide air support. But no, he couldn't do that. Okay. He did the worst thing you can possibly do. He took the military out first, and then he said to everybody else, save yourself. And he didn't care about them. Then he did the second worst thing. He, he blamed people. The Afghan army, until that, that dissolution, had, had paid an enormous price. And uh, okay. so he's going to, I think he's shocked, he's in a state of shock right now because the press contextualizes everything he does. If he has a brain freeze or he takes a piece of egg off his chin and swallows it, he's still Pericles, okay. as far as they're concerned. Okay. And now he's not, and they can't believe it. He feels he's betrayed, he's angry. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Tell your friends about us. By the way, I'm not the only Hoover fellow doing podcasts these days. Go to hoover.org, which is our website, and then you'll see a tab that says Publications. Click on the Publications tab. That'll take you to a set of other tabs, including one that said Podcasts. Click on that one. You'll then see a whole bevy of podcasts in front of you. The good news about this, you can subscribe to any or all of them if you'd like. You can also sign up for the Hoover Institution's monthly Pod Blast, which delivers our best of our podcast to your inbox each and every month. Hoover Podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Victor Davis Hansen, he's on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at VD Hansen. Hansen spelled H-A-N-S-O-N, at V-D-H-A-N-S-O-N. Victor also has his own webpage, VictorHanson.com. There you'll find his latest columns, his essays, his podcasts, his books, uh, everything you want to know about Victor, his life story. It's a fantastic website. You should bookmark that right next to Hoover.org. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.